There are so many religions in the world. How are they similar and how are they different? We need to know. The culturally correct view is to blend them all together as equally relevant and legitimate. But is that true? Prior to becoming a follower of Jesus, your host, Mike Shreve, was an avid seeker of truth, exploring many paths to spirituality. One of his passions now is to help bridge the gap so that others can discover the true light, which gives light to everyone entering the world. Now, here's Mike Shreve revealing the true light. Not long ago, I was doing a presentation on comparative religion, and I happened to mention that some people believe that truth is relative. And after the session was over, my wife and I were talking, and she said, well, of course truth is relevant. And I said, no, honey, I said, not relevant, relative. And she looked at me with this quizzical look like, what's that relate to? Uh, And I could imagine cousins, uncles, and aunts going through her mind, relatives. And I said, well, it means that truth is subjective. And that didn't solve the problem. It didn't answer the question at all. So we got into a discussion about it. And I thought, well, if that was an issue in her thinking, and she's a very intelligent person. She'd been through four years of college and, and very educated. And I thought if if it was a foggy thing to her, it's probably a foggy thing to a lot of people. What that concept really means, truth is relative or truth is subjective. When people say that, what are they saying? Are those statements true statements or false statements? Are they good statements or bad statements? Before we can make any kind of progress toward understanding truth, or embracing truth, or establishing truth in our lives, this is a fundamental issue that needs to be dealt with. Is truth relative? Is truth subjective or objective? Well, I may not have answered the questions in your mind yet, so let me go a little bit deeper in definitions. When somebody says truth is relative, they're talking about relativism. And relativism is an idea that streams from Greek philosophy. A philosopher named Protagoras happened to put forth that idea that truth is relative. And he underscored it with a quotation that comes from him that man is the measure of all things. Well, if man is the measure of all things, we're in trouble because human beings are unstable, unpredictable And given to their own wishes and desires and wants and ideas, they go every imaginable kind of direction. There's no standard morality. There's no standard belief system. So if man is the measure of all things, then how could you come to a stable understanding of truth or what we would call objective truth? And I'll explain that in just a moment. That's relativism. A relativist believes there are no absolute truths. Why? Why would a relativist believe there are no absolute truths? Because every statement that is labeled, quote-unquote, truth is measured by contributing factors that either affect it or are affected by it. Let me give you an example. For instance, Is Los Angeles close to New York City? Answer that question. Is Los Angeles close to New York City? 
Well, I can imagine what most of your answers might be. However, the response depends on what you're measuring that response by. It depends. Truth is relative to the relativist because the answer is related to the distance that Los Angeles is to something else. For instance, if you're comparing the distance from Los Angeles to New York to the distance from Los Angeles to San Diego, which is only about 120 miles away, while New York is several thousand miles away, you would say, oh, it's a long way from Los Angeles to New York City. It's, uh, it's quite a distance from, uh, from one city to the other. But if you were to be comparing it to the distance from Los Angeles to Mars, for instance, Mars is 198.47 million miles from planet Earth and from Los Angeles. So if you said, well, is New York City very far from Los Angeles? Absolutely not. They're almost on top of each other compared to the distance to Mars. Can you see how truth is relative or it's related to some comparison that affects your statement of supposed truth? Or let me give you another related example. How long does it take to get to New York City from Los Angeles? Well, that's relative. What do you mean relative? It's relative to what kind of vehicle you take or what kind of means you use to get from one city to the other. If you fly from Los Angeles to New York City, that may take about five or six hours. If you drive to New York City from Los Angeles, that may take about 39 hours. If you walk from Los Angeles to New York City, if you make it, it will take about 912 hours. So the truth is related to the circumstances attached to it. Can you see that vein of thought? And when people say that truth is relative, what they're saying is that you can't really have a standard of truth because you've got to see it from the Hindu point of view, the Buddhist point of view, the Muslim point of view, the Christian point of view, the point of view in Judaism or Shinto. All these contributing factors get in the mix of trying to come up with truth. And that's why in this generation especially, you hear people say things like, truth is subjective. You can have your truth and I can have my truth, or the older way of saying it is different strokes for different folks. In other words, you can't nail it down. You can't say this is definite. Now, let me give you an idea of what the difference is between subjective and objective. If truth is subjective, then it is subject to it is subject to something else, something that influences it. It is subject to a person's feelings, interpretations, or prejudices, or biases, or certain beliefs in that person's belief system. If truth is subjective, then you can have your truth and I can have my truth and we can both be right. But if truth is objective, that means that it is not influenced by a person's feelings or interpretations or prejudices, my personal feelings on the matter don't matter. If I don't believe in gravity, it's still an established fact. It's an objective truth. 
I'm going to fall to the ground if I jump off of the Empire State Building. Now, I may have a subjective truth that I can fly through the air and flap my hands like wings, but truth is objective. Gravity will cause me to plunge to the ground. If someone says truth is subjective, they are claiming to communicate a truth about truth. Now, listen to this real closely or you'll get confused. If someone says truth is subjective, well, I'm trying to give you a nugget of truth. And my nugget of truth is the idea that truth is subjective. But if truth is subjective, if it can't be an absolute truth, then what I just said is questionable. And, and so the idea that truth is subjective is subjective itself. You may not believe that, and I may believe that. Now, I've totally confused you, I'm sure. We're about to totally descend into chaos mentally and emotionally and spiritually if we accept this idea that you can have your truth and I can have my truth, and we can both be right. Now, I will admit this, that truth can be developed but it cannot be denied at its base. See, you can have a foundation of truth that you develop over time. You develop greater understanding, more details are added to the mix that are complementary and not contradictory. And so truth can be developed, but it cannot be denied at its base or removed from its base. Also, you can look at it this way, that truth can be expanded, but it cannot exist apart from its original core. And so if you have a core of truth through the years that you develop your understanding, it may expand in you, but it's never divorced from its original core. When I go to India, I have to address this because Hinduism is an amalgamation of many different ideas. In fact, it's a religion that readily absorbs a multiplicity of ideas and concepts and gods and goddesses and beliefs. It can all just be blended together into that worldview, that belief system. And so I have to address this idea usually at the very beginning of a presentation because it establishes the need to discriminate between what is false and what is true, what is acceptable and what should be rejected. And usually I bring in an analogy like this. What if, what if Ptolemy and Copernicus could discuss their beliefs? What if they were contemporaries and lived at the same time? Now they were about a millennia apart, a millennium apart, but, uh, Ptolemy was a second century geographer and astronomer that believed the earth was in the center of the solar system and the sun revolved around the earth. In fact, that's the basis of astrology. That's one of the reasons I don't believe in astrology because it's based on a Ptolemaic view of the solar system. However, A little over a thousand years later, Copernicus comes along and says, no, no, it's heliocentric. The sun is at the center and the earth revolves around the sun. Is it even remotely possible that they could sit in a room together discussing their beliefs and Ptolemy could say to Copernicus, hey, you can have your truth and I can have my truth and we can both be right? No, 
one of those ideas has got to be discarded because they cannot coexist. See, you see those bumper stickers all the time, coexist with all the different religious symbols. I believe that we can live together in harmony with people who are Hindus and Muslims and Buddhists, etc. But I do not believe you can merge all the belief systems because truth is not subjective. Truth is not relative. Relevant truth is objective truth. The rest is a distortion of truth or a complete fabrication altogether. There's only one core of truth. Anyway, one of those ideas has got to be discarded and the other embraced. One is true at the expense of the other being wrong. And of course, we have learned that Copernicus theory was not a theory, but a actually correct view of the solar system. It is heliocentric. The sun is at the center and the earth revolves around the sun. Objective truth. In that sense, truth is not relative and truth is not subjective. And in like manner, if God has a divine order in the natural universe, don't you think it's logical that God has a divine order in the spiritual universe, in the celestial realms, or in the way that human beings in the natural realm can finally one day enter the spiritual realm. I believe there's a divine order for all things and that truth is truth wherever you find it. All truth is God's truth wherever you discover it. And sometimes you get little glimmers of truth in all religions. The golden rule, for instance, do unto others as you would have them do unto you. That's a truth that you can find in Buddhism, in Hinduism, in Islam, in Judaism, in Christianity, in Shinto, in all the religions of the world that are positive approaches to life. You find the golden rule. Why could objective truth be found in religious systems that now I would say are not true as a whole? Because see, all human beings have a conscience and all human beings have a spirit. The spirit is in a fallen state we are made up of spirit, soul, and body, and the spirit is dead in trespasses and sins. Each one of those three parts to us is a trinity within itself. The body is made up of flesh, bones, and blood. The soul is made up of mind, will, and emotions. And the spirit is made up of three functions, communion with God, revelation from God, and conscience. When the fallen state transpired in the Garden of Eden, and Adam and Eve were cut off from God. The spirit became a dead thing within them, barely alive, like a barely burning coal. Their conscience still flickered somewhat and passed on that spiritual state to all of their offspring. And so because of the conscience, we get little glimmers of understanding concerning truth that may come to anyone Anywhere, in any religion, they may get these little insights. But just because there are some common truths doesn't mean all beliefs of all religions can be readily absorbed into one composite whole. It's not so. And then every now and then, God just gives flashes of understanding through the magne uh, magnificent universe that is around us. We look up into the sky and the heavens declare the glory of God. The very existence of God is testified 
by this magnificent universe that we can look out into. And so men get little flashes of understanding. There is a God and I am accountable to that God. Those kind of things begin this journey of truth. But you've got to go further than just what the conscience or that sense of God's existence can bring to you. Let me share a story out of the Bible. John chapter 18, verses 37 and 38. Jesus is standing before Pilate. He's about to be condemned to the cross. His crime, well, the people have accused him of many things, but word kind of filtered through to Pilate that some of them were saying Jesus was the promised Messiah, the one who would be king and reign over them. And he wondered if he was one of the zealots, I suppose, or what have you. But Pilate asked Jesus, are you a king? And Jesus' response was, you say rightly that I am a king. For this cause I was born, and for this cause I came into the world to bear witness of the truth. And Pilate responded with a three-word statement that is one of the most important questions ever to be asked in this world. He said, what is truth? And then he went out to the crowd and said, I find no fault in him at all. I think the irony of that is that in a bodily form, truth was standing in front of Pilate because Jesus is the embodiment of truth. The Bible said, that grace came by Jesus Christ and truth came by Jesus Christ. But more than that, in John 14, verse 6, Jesus made the claim, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And no one comes to the Father except through me. Well, that's either the statement of an egomaniac who is self-deceived and deceiving others, or He was who he said he was. And I would dare to say the latter is true, that he was not an egomaniac, and he was not deluded, and he was certainly not deceiving others. He was the way, the truth, and the life. An interesting little side issue is in ancient times, the Jewish people had a name for the veil of the outer court and the veil to the holy place and the veil to the holy of holies in the tabernacle of Moses. And the veil to the outer court was called the way. The veil to the holy place was called the truth. And the veil to the holy of holies was called the life. And beyond that veil was the Ark of the Covenant. And in the Ark of the Covenant were the tablets of stone with the handwriting of God, the Ten Commandments. And the glory of God rested on the top of the Ark of the Covenant, which was called the mercy seat the way, the truth, and the life. And when Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life, that was his way of saying, I am the gateway to the glory of God. And if you pass through me, you'll enter into this glorious experience of an encounter with God where you can receive mercy from him and the glory of God can fill your life. And he'll write on your heart the very same thing he wrote on the tablets of stone. The finger of God will write into your heart love for his laws and his commandments. Praise God. Yes, he was the way, the truth, and the life. Truth is not a concept. Truth is a person. He was the embodiment of truth. And when you find Jesus, you find the truth.
But then it gets even better. Because, see, once you find the Lord Jesus Christ and accept him into your heart, then the Holy Spirit comes into your life, and the Holy Spirit is called the Spirit of Truth. And so the Holy Spirit begins to lead you and guide you into all truth once he comes inside. Until you receive Jesus, who is the truth, as Lord of your life, you're pushing your way through the dark fog of deception in this world. There's three means of deception that have darkened the whole planet. Number one is Satan. In Revelation 12, 9, the Bible said he's that deceiver that has deceived the whole world. How did he encompass the whole human race with his influence? Through an army of demons who receive his influence and then they pass it on through principalities and powers and demons that are subject to Satan's authority, they pass his deception on to the entire human race. He's deceived the whole world. There's not anyone in this world that has not come under that diabolical influence. And that's not all. The Bible also says that we should exhort one another daily while it is called a day, lest anyone be hardened through the deceitfulness of sin. Not only is Satan a deceiver, sin is a deceiver because sin paints itself up in a very attractive package. But then once you open the the package and accept something into your life that is contrary to God's will and purpose, then it has an infective and invasive influence on you that infects you with a disease of sin that corrupts you to the core. It's a horrible thing. Sin destroys. Sin, when it is finished, brings forth death, mental death, emotional death, moral death, physical death. Sin has a horrible ultimate end. But there's one thing that's worse than the devil and worse than sin. Jeremiah 17, 9 talks about it. It says, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked above all things. So more deceitful than the devil, more deceitful than sin is the human heart that has not yet been born again, that has not yet been regenerated. That happens when Jesus comes into your heart and he gives you a brand new spirit and he uh, infills you with the spirit of God, praise God, and then you become a dwelling place of the God of truth and the spirit of truth takes up residence within you, everything changes then. But up until that moment, the heart is deceitful above all things, desperately wicked and desperately subject to deceitful influence, demonic influence, occultic influence, false religions, false ideas, false philosophies. We accept them, we absorb them because we don't have the spirit of truth leading us and guiding us. So very difficult era that we're a part of too. Jesus' disciples asked him a very pointed question in Matthew 24. He had just told them that every stone in the temple would be torn down. That didn't happen until about 40 years later, but he told them there's not one stone here upon another that will not be thrown down. When they were enamored with the glory of the temple, And they asked him, they said, tell us, when will these things be? And what will be the sign of your coming and the end of the age? Now they mixed three questions together. And that's why you've got to remember all three questions as you decipher the meaning of the following verses. 
But the first thing that Jesus said when asked about the end of the age was, take heed that no one deceives you. This is an hour of greater deception than ever before because deception can be accomplished on a more massive scale now than ever through mass media. There can be mass psychosis, mass hypnosis. There can be a manipulation of the entire human race to believe something that is a lie. So much deception is going on right now in the world through the media especially, you've got to be a discerning person to be able to discern the difference between truth and falsehood. So there you have it, the three main sources of deception. But when Jesus comes into your heart, you meet the one who said, I am the truth. And the spirit of truth resides in you from that point forward. I urge you to do that. If you have never done that, why not now? Why not take that bold step that I took 51 years ago when I was a teacher of yoga at four universities and I was running a yoga ashram and I was confronted with the idea that Jesus was the truth and no truth was outside of him and that he was the only avatar or incarnation of God into this world. My mind rebelled against all of that, but I thought, what if that's the truth? What if he is the only way? To heaven and the only way to eternal life and the only way to a relationship with God. I thought if I don't try it, I may miss the thing that I've been so passionate about for so many years. So even though I had to step over my logic that was fighting against me every inch of the way, I went ahead and prayed that prayer and I said over and over all day long, I dedicated one day to Jesus and I said, if you are the truth, then give me a sign today. And I was expecting a vision, an audible voice. I told him I won't do any meditation. I won't do any mantra yoga. I won't do any yoga asanas or pranayama or any of that. All I'm going to do is read the Bible and talk to you. And if you're the truth, I believe you'll show me today. That afternoon, a former student of Yogananda, who was a very famous guru back in the 50s, 60s, 70s in this nation, the United States, a former student of his who became a follower of Jesus picked me up hitchhiking. And when I got in his van, I looked in and there was a picture of Jesus on the ceiling. And I knew it was what I'd prayed about all day long. He led me in a very simple prayer, asking Jesus to come into my heart, repenting of my sins, and, and asking him to wash me clean in the precious blood he shed on the cross. And I was born again. And you can be born again too. It's very simple. Just talk to Jesus. He loves you with an everlasting love. And then contact me on the website, thetruelight.net. Thank you for joining Mike Shreve today on Revealing the True Light. And thank you for opening your mind and your heart to the truth. Be sure to subscribe on iTunes, cpnshows.com, or wherever you listen to podcasts so you don't miss new episodes. You can explore the beliefs of many world religions more deeply by ordering Mike Shree's book titled In Search of the True Light. We also invite you to visit our website, thetruelight.net, and sign up to be part of our global internet family.